Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast of our honoured writer, the preeminent scholar and distinguished novelist, playwright, short story writer, poet, biographer and librettist, Vincent O'Sullivan, in conversation with Fergus Barrowman in a podcast proudly powered by Spark. Vincent's writing is wry, erudite and generous, informed by a childhood spent in suburban Auckland and a deep interest in the multiplicity of humanity. A graduate of the Universities of Auckland and Oxford, he has also made an outstanding contribution to New Zealand literary scholarship, illuminating the works of John Mulgan and James K. Baxter, and co-editing the five-volume edition, Catherine Mansfield's Collected Letters, and the two-volume Complete Fiction. Away from the Academy, he served as the books editor for the New Zealand Listener, where he was also a trusted critic. He has been fated often, including with the Prime Minister's Literary Award and a Distinguished Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit, and has won New Zealand Book Awards three times for fiction and three times for poetry. We hope you enjoy this session. Uh, good evening, and thank you, Nicola. Thank you, Fergus. And this reading is from this um, wee publication, and it's called Longing, and its beginning is in the beginning. The first time I heard the word longing was during Smoko in an old corrugated iron factory in Blake Street, Ponsonby, when I was five or six. I was there with my father, who drove the truck that delivered iron hospital beds and different kinds of furniture all over the city. To stand on the back of the truck, high above the heads of mere people in the street, level with the roofs of cars and windows of trams, was what privilege was about. But back at the factory you came down to earth, and it was your head then the men talked over. There was a man worked there called Mr. Lenny Roseman, whom my father didn't much like, and who sometimes had to be told to tone it down a bit, Woody, in front of the boy. And when he was asked how it was going there, Lenny, he would nod back and say, longing for it. He must have said it often to me to remember it, longing for it. And sometimes whoever he said it to would laugh as though he had made a joke and I had no idea in the world what it was supposed to mean. It was a fair introduction, to some at least, of what the word could do. As I think back to Mr. Lenny Roseman, his stub of cigarette at the corner of his mouth, a word that may now seem obscure or tentative or even a touch embarrassing if it's someone else's longing we are talking about, but one at the core of things, secret and ineradicable and not necessarily all that clear if it is my own. And where the beginning was. When I was a child, the civilization of the West began at a very precise point, the glittering silver-painted dome of the post office at the top of College Hill. And the three lamps, how that phrase, the lamps, carried a ring to it, just as looking up at those iron lanterns with their panes of bright glass threw me into a world whose shapes were both shadows and truly solid. Part of those shapes was what one knew very well, one's parents, one's family's friends, things solid as the back porch steps and the veranda rail and yet shadowy too, and that seemingly endless talk of a time and a place which was once as real to them, the grown-ups, as this was to myself now. 
I knew that Tralee and Wellington were further than Freeman's Bay, and I knew that where I lived was on the other side of the world, as so many of those voices kept telling me. What they talked about was distant and yet strangely real, as was Ponsonby Road before I was born, a long time back, when the lamps meant flickering flares on the top of a tall post while horse trams clattered to either side of it, and at night when burglars killed the postmaster and took his keys, the light shone along the gleaming haunches of the horses because there were hardly any cars. And at the end of it all, a man was hanged who hadn't done the murder, and his gravestone at Waikamiti said so. For a child, reality is so often something like that. What is so living and graspable and immediately there in front of you, and what is quite as real, but you will never touch? The seven swans of Glenda Locke, or whatever the other stories are that you hear, and that place the grown-ups talked of, the enchanted distance when they were young that you so desperately want to know as well. That gap where for many of us longing begins. But there was a romance enough, you realize, without having to go further back than the people you knew and the places where they were. Where Billy Murphy, one-time featherweight champion of nearly the world, lived in his small house at the end of Summer Street. <clears throat> where Nat Gould, the Jewish bookie, who claimed to be related to the Marx Brothers, raised his Homburg hat each time his Irish, wife dress, his Irish dressmaker wife blasphemed. Where bandmaster W.H. Smith, whose band you even heard on the wireless, flashed his tree-sized baton as he practiced in the backyard. There were the Ellises, a family so terrifyingly tough that you'd walk half a mile out of your way not to endure their silent contempt. The shame of knowing that the Alices didn't think you worth bashing up. There was a family near the little park in Turritai Crescent, once you were old enough to be let in on it, where a pair of handsome sisters got undressed in a room that had no blinds. It was only a while ago it came home to me quite how much I had written, often when I thought I was doing something else, about the Ponsonby where I was born, the Westmere where I grew up, the Greylin where I first went to school. Even about Point Chevalier, that tree-flecked promontory beyond the volcanic reef that spilled like an enormous ink stain as you stood on the shallow clay cliffs. Point Chev, that mysterious, almost enemy territory across the shimmer of the tides, where sex, that even greater mystery, sometimes happened, so you overheard, beneath the blue pines and the Pahutakawas. And where, as I read so much later, the prolific tribe of Sinclairs in turn looked over to the mangroved groins of Westmere. The reef that separated us was where adventure occurred. It was where my brother's schoolmates stole dynamite from the quarry and hid it under our house until the police stood at the back door. It was where a domestic tragedy and drowning could spread their own stain of grief. Nostalgia, that lovely word whose origin means, quite simply, the ache of not being home. Okay. <clears throat> <clears throat>
<coughs> Thank you, Vincent. Um, <coughs> I, I love this essay, and I think I should offer you now a contract for the complete version. I mean, if you could add 100,000 words, we'll have it out next year. I'd have to like the main character a lot more to keep going, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, now, you were born here in Auckland in 1937. Um, can, can you tell us about the O'Sullivan family you were born into? Well, I think the family you're born into always seems sort of so ordinary to you. There doesn't seem to be a hell of a lot to say about it. But um, my, my mother's people had been in New Zealand since 1865 when uh, uh, they initially came over with the 65th Regiment to put the Maori with the Waikato in their place. Mm -hmm. um, and my father came out as a boy from uh, the south, uh, south of Ireland in, uh, in 1908. So, uh, and then there were six of us in the family and that's about it. <laughs> Do you think that that Irish Catholic identity sort of set you slightly apart from mainstream New Zealand? Yeah, I, I suppose it's inevitable with any family. There's a sort of um, almost a schizophrenia in all our childhood experience in that there's the family that we take so utterly for granted and that there's nothing extraordinary about because it's there every day. Mm -hmm. And then as you get a bit older, you realise there's a world outside of that, and you're both at once, and somehow you either have to accommodate both or it, it becomes a problem. So whatever your background is, whatever sort of the, uh, your great parents, uh, grandparents come from and so on, is inevitably at some point going to put you into a minority group, even as you're part of the bigger New Zealand experience as well. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing particularly special about that because it's an inevitable thing that happens to everyone. But then the actual delineation of that, um, that unique family sort of comes home to you and you gradually realise, and I realise it more all the time still, how it shapes you in various ways that you're not aware of until the shaping's done. <laughs> Well, can, can you tell us a little bit more about that, about the, I suppose, the Irish thing, your father from Ireland? You told me something off the record about your uncle. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose, I, curiously, I was the one in the family, uh, being the youngest in the family, and yet I was the one that was most interested, perhaps, as a, as a kid in Irish things. For example, one of the my early trauma was <laughs> when... Eamon de Valera came to New Zealand. I was desperate to go and hear him speak at the town hall. My older brother wasn't the least bit interested. Um, and, but I needed to get the money to come into, into the thing. I was about 10 or something like that. And my brother said, well, I'll give you half a crown if you'll sing me God Save the King. And <laughs> you can see in the, con in, in, in the context, there was a, a sort of a almost a, a beautiful pragmatism to this kind of refined unpleasantness that I greatly envied my brother for. <laughs> yeah. um, you studied at St. Joseph's and Grey Lynn and at Sacred Heart, yes. and, and, and I heard um, a story from someone that you were once the only boy in a girls' secondary school. Is that true? Ah, uh, no. <laughs> it, wasn't, it was never that good. Um, what it was is that there was a... Uh, uh, they didn't teach Greek at Sacred Heart, but there was a 
a, a splendid scholar called Sister Veronica at Saint, across at St. Mary's, and I used to go across to her for, for lessons. Mm -hmm. So what this meant is that once a fortnight or once a uh, week or something, I'd, I'd go over, um, walk, walk across Ponsley Road to St. Mary's and uh, knock on the door and Greek was only half of my interest. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're, you're about 16, so it must have been the envy of all of your yeah. friends. Mm -hmm. But perhaps the, the, true, the more important part of that story is that you were crossing the road to study Greek. You, you must have been somehow marked out as a scholar from quite an early oh, age. Oh, I don't, don't know about that. It was, it was partly a cunning to it, I think. And <laughs> so, so it was actually the girls that got you to Greek that got you to university. Well, um, there was a contribution on their part, perhaps. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, when did you start thinking about writing? Was that something that was there in your childhood? Did you send poems to the newspapers in the way that children do? No, curious enough, perhaps that I'm, I'm always sort of a bit embarrassed when I'm talking to other writers who say that they they did their first few novels by the time they were eight or ten or something like that, <laughs> um, and were precocious writers. It was I wasn't even deeply, I mean, I was interested in reading and that and feeling all sort of way. But it wasn't until I can always pinpoint the, the afternoon in Westmere. Mm -hmm. um, summer afternoon, I was reading for some reason, picked up a book of Keats, and um, under a lemon tree... <laughs> Um, and I read The Eve of St. Agnes, and which is probably the most important uh, moment in my life because I suddenly saw that there was this other way of, not another way, but this bigger way of being engaged with reality, which was writing, and writing wasn't just a good thing, it was sort of a necessity. Right. Yeah. But I, I didn't start writing then, but that was the beginning of my, I suppose, interest in literature. But you started publishing reasonably young while you were still a student. Yeah, I published in Landfall when I was a student at Auckland, but I was so sort of absurdly naive that when Charles Brash wrote me a letter and said that he'd like to take some of these poems, you know, I was incredibly chuffed by this getting into Landfall. Rightly. And there were a couple of, there was a line or two that he said that perhaps he wasn't quite happy with. And in my innocence, I wrote back and said, oh, well, look, make them whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote back a splendid letter that started off, what a shocking abnegation of paternity. <laughs> uh, yes, I, as, as a publisher, I know that feeling. You, you, you want a writer who's prepared to be edited, but you don't want them to roll over. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, so in those university years here in Auckland, were, were writing and scholarship complementary or were you being pulled in different directions then? No, I, I did sort of the normal, fairly normal things that a student does, you know, do a bit of uh, writing for the uh, for Crackham, for the mm -hmm. magazine and so on, and started to write a few poems. But it was all in a fairly desultory way. It wasn't a, a sense as if I was blinded by the necessity to write. It wasn't, wasn't right. that. Yeah. And, and then you went off to Oxford mm. as a postgraduate. Um, did, did that change you in a major way? And I was too young when I went to Oxford. Uh, the historian Bill Oliver 
Tommy, he went when he was about 28, and I think I'd have been better if I'd gone then rather than my early 20s when um, I think I was just... There were so many distractions in getting to Europe, getting to England, that uh, one's work and scholarly work sort of very much took, took a second place. Um, also, while I worked on there, but I wonder if there's anyone here who remembers the Dr. Shepherd at Auckland University, who was, who was a terrifying lady. Mm -hmm. And before I went off, she said, oh, what are you going to do, Mr. O'Sullivan, at Oxford? And I said, I was thinking at, of um, looking at Oscar Wilde, Dr. Shepherd, and she said, not a wise thing for a young man. <laughs> <laughs> and the bracket, what closed that story, is when I finished at Oxford and then applied for a job at Victoria, the very different um, and almost brutal doc, uh, Professor Ian Gordon uh, asked me what I'd done, and I said, I've done some work on Oscar Wilde. He said, I will soon grow out of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so was it inevitable that you would come back to New Zealand, or do you think if you'd gone to Oxford later, you might have stayed and become an international scholar? No, no, I don't think so at all. It never, never really occurred to me. Uh, to do anything else but come back to New Zealand, and you know this is this is why I haven't really been particularly interested in sending stuff off anywhere else because this is where I live. This happens to be, um, and for better or worse, and I think there's a lot you can say under worse as well as better for living in New Zealand. Uh, but that that's the focus. That's where you should give your attention, it seems to me, to where you're living. So it, it wasn't really a decision I had to make or regretted. It just seemed the natural thing to do, to come back. But I suppose that's partly for family reasons and so on. I was very comfortable. I wanted to get back to New Zealand. And once or twice I've thought it would have been interesting what if I'd gone somewhere else. But no, it's, it's, it's not a thing particularly to regret at all. No, it's interesting. Um there's been some talk recently about whether New Zealand literature is even a useful category anymore if we should think about individual writers going bravely into the world. No, I don't believe that for a minute. It's everyone, every writer comes from somewhere, they're shaped by somewhere, and what they fundamentally express is determined by and related to that place. Now, I know it's very nice, but you know, to be uh, maybe published overseas and that sort of thing. But the thing is, you cannot be a global writer because we cannot be global citizens. You know, we live here, we have families here, we vote here. If we contribute anything much to a larger scene, I think it has to be done through the smaller channels where you live. Right. I, I, you remind me of that um, slogan, think global, act local. Yeah, yeah um, I certainly fact, agree with that. Yeah, Rereading your poetry, mm. it's full of Rilke, it's full mm. of European art museums, it's full of experiences overseas. And but, yet, yeah. but then this is quite a different thing to where you're going to live. For example, it seems to me that if we emphasise too much New Zealand literature per se, that becomes a very narrow thing. It seems to me that Keats or Dryden or anyone else is as much our literary forebear, literary ancestor, 
as if we were born in Brixton or in Oxford. Mm. That we are, that writers here, or ones of a European background, that they are our legitimate claim for our literary or intellectual whakapapa. Yep. And to think of it as, oh, somehow New Zealand's this narrow stream and here's this bigger thing over there. Nonsense, really, I think, because that's all available to us and it's our, simply our birthright as much as if we were born in Europe. Absolutely. Actually, would, would you like to read a couple of poems at this point, uh, since we're talking about the poetry? Oh, okay. um, I'll start with a poem I further suggested um, that I might choose this one, and I'll just mention a bit about it because it, it seems to me that a, a poem isn't in fact, most writing, it isn't a linear thing. It's not going from point A to point B. That a poem is, as the word, the origin of the word text suggests, it's a fabric. It's something that's woven. So it's not a line that we draw from experience. It's something that we place over experience. And as with anything that's woven, there are connections, one line leads into another, one thread comes into another. So that as soon as we start telling a story, it becomes another story as well. It's very difficult to be a purist about this, it seems to me. And we think if we're just talking normally to someone, the minute we've said and more than three times, we're involved in a story. And there's no way apart from that, away from that that stories are the way we naturally communicate. And this is a, a poem called Seeing You Asked, which I suppose is where this notion of what uh, one story, it's impossible to be a pure story, one story leads into another. There's a dozen things I might tell you. There is a Chinese poem to begin with of a woman folding curtains as she leaves a man forever. There is a Roman writing from the, from the edge of ice fields, a vista of dull silver beyond clicking reeds, to a woman who watches a blue smoking mountain in almost unbearable heat. There are wartime movies with sad bridges across morning rivers, the woman pressing the two wings of her collar together as a train draws out. There's the story as well of a woman driving north towards a lake, a lake that was once fire, a house by the lake, a life inside the house, where today's love becomes another fiction. You open when the room is empty, put down when you hear voices, stand up smiling at life where it happens. There is no ending to certain stories. The plot has no desperate turns, the vase on the bedside table burns with azaleas, whatever happens. But love, we say, love, there are corners on the stairways, there are fragments in each hour, when the notes drift back, the one scarcely heard. Just as the lake is always beside you, spreading out and out. You say you swim, you read, you fish. There is something like the glint of a hook. There is something, love, in that shimmering vault, trolling too fast to speak of.
Shall I read another? Read, read, read another, and then we'll, we'll move. Yes. This one's called Being Here, uh, which is the, the title poem of the collected poems of a year or so ago, and a much more uh, a poem written clo closer to, to now. Um, 97, sorry. This is the moment you dread when you forget you can't quite find the, the poem you're after. 162. I think it's always um, a bit of a risk or a bit of a danger to say <clears throat> this poem more than others perhaps represents what I think generally about things, but uh, to some extent, in this case, it's, yeah. it, 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 is, it is so. Being here. It has to be a thin world, surely, if you ask for an emblem at every turn. If you cannot see bees arcing and mining the soft, decaying galaxies of the laden apricot tree without wanting symbols, which of course are manifold, symbols of so much else. But what's amiss with simply the huddle and glut of bees, with those fuzzed globes by the hundred and the clipped-out sky beyond them, and the leaves that are black if you angle the sun directly behind them, being themselves for themselves. I hold out my palms like the open pages of a book and you pile apricots on them stacked three deep. We ask just who can we give them to round here who hasn't had their whack of apricots as it is. And I let my hands tilt and the plastic bag that you hold rustles and plumps with their rush. I hold one back and bite into it, and its taste is the taste of the color exactly, and this hour precisely, and memory I expect is storing for an afternoon far removed from here, when the warm, furred, almost weightlessness of the fruit I hold might very well be a symbol of what's lost and we keep on wanting, which after all is to crave the real, the branches cutting across the sun you're standing there while I tell you, come on, you have to try one, and you do. And the clamor of bees goes on above us. This will do, both of us saying, like this, being here. Thank you. Right. <clears throat> I, I love the warmth and the vivid images and the seizing of the moment there. That, that's quite a recent poem. It was a um, few years ago. Yeah. Um, what I remember with reading your selection against all of the other poems and the books that, that didn't make it in, and, and this book is, is it's quite a substantial selected poems, and there are some beauties on the cutting room floor as well. Um, I, had, I had an idea that there might have been a change in your poetry, that the, the 15 years you taught at New Zealand universities and published poems and you built up those mm. wonderful personae, um, Butcher and Pilot, and the brother Jonathan, brother Kafka, that wonderful sort of vernacular and philosophical mm. sequence, to these later poems, but in fact it's a very continuous series of concerns, isn't it? Yes, I, I, I suppose I'd, I'd agree with that, but... 
The thing is, when you've written quite a bit, you start to see patterns that, of course, you were completely unaware of at the time. So that's why I was hesitant in, in answering that question, because it can start to sound, if you talk like that too much, that your writing is too schematic, that you've had this theme that you've followed through for 20 or 30 years or something. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you're not aware of that. You don't know it's a theme. You don't know it's something you're returning to until it's been returned to several times and then it's yeah. too late, you can't deny it. So yeah. the thing is that poetry or anything you write does add up to having sort of cer certain traits, certain aspects and, and re repeated uh, at attempts or qualities. But it doesn't, I think the so as soon as you start thinking that as a writer, you're in trouble because you think this is the groove where I often go or where I should go. So the difficult thing, I suppose, or the impetus to keep going is always that thing is that what you're trying to do is fresh, even if someone tells you, God, that's old hat, you did that mm -hmm. a long time ago. Yeah. So you're not crafting a career, you're living a life. That's right. It's only in yes. retrospect mm. that the figure mm. in the carpet yeah. becomes apparent. And the good thing is that you can't ever look at yourself retrospectively. By the time you do that, it's not going to be your concern. <laughs> it's yeah. true. It's very true. Um, I remember Bill Manhire telling me once and, and saying to other people that he stopped writing poems and turned to short stories when he realised that he was writing Bill Manhire poems. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you did something very similar. Um, about 1978-79, um, you left academia and went to work for the listener as the literary editor, and you published your first book of short stories, The Boy, the Bridge and the River. What sort of created all of that change? Well, a university, oddly enough, isn't altogether the most congenial place for a writer to spend his life. And it's difficult to talk about this without sounding as if you've got more problems than you have, even if you have got some. <laughs> um, but it's a curious business of day after day <clears throat> talking about literature, um, having to hear other people talk about it, um, and your own stuff obviously seems pretty, pretty trivial if you're talking about uh, lecturing on, you know, one of one of the big figures. Mm -hmm. And it's not. Again, I must emphasise this just personally, but it's not a particularly healthy way for a writer to exist. It seems to me in a university context, you're always lucky there in a in a department to have some very, very fine scholars, but you're also going to have people there who would really rather like to call the shots when it comes to, to literature and what sh should be done in New Zealand and so on. And this is my big reservation about New Zealand literature, just being hived off and emphasised too much. It then becomes a concern where you'll get people whose career depends on the levels of their um, acceptable dogmatism, can I put it that way? Yeah. <laughs> so you got away from that. Yeah, so, so to get out of that for a while and to go into journalism, and then um, I lived in Australia for a few, few, few years and didn't come back until 1988, back to uh, New Zealand and back to Victoria. And it was a, a world that I appreciated so much more by because I had that gap from it. So you had 10 yeah. years of moving about from fellowship yes. to fellowship. Um, yeah. yeah. But it was also a period of about 10 years when I didn't write any poetry. 
at all. No poetry at all. Yeah, and I suppose was was writing prose. And and what was it in short stories? I mean, this is a, almost a conventional path for a writer, isn't it, from poetry to short stories, then later to novels. But what was it to short, about the short story that captured you at that time? Well, it's such a, a lovely form yeah. to deal with. And, you know, you think of the short stories that you really admire and sort of you're enchanted by the form. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it's a natural place to go to immediately from poetry and that poetry is... Oh, Writing is sort of a solitary vice, if you're honest about it. Mm-hmm. And then to move to that, to the short story, I think it's wrong to say that short stories are always about outsiders, peripheral people. The best short, uh, book about short stories I've ever come across is um, O'Connor, Frank O'Connor, mm-hmm. the Irish writer, um, a marvellous set of essays, including probably the best essay ever written about Mansfield. And it's called The Lonely Voice. And that's a good description of of the short story. A novel cannot be a lonely voice, even if it's about a loner, because you've got the whole context of a society. It sort of has to be there, or it's there in most novels. Whereas the thing that makes think sometimes that short stories are about outsiders is that there simply isn't room to suggest or you can suggest it but there isn't room to demonstrate a whole society and so it seems if you're interested in writing poetry which it does tend to be uh, a bit introspective and and going over your your own interests a bit and so on. And then to move to a short story, you're simply saying he or she instead of I. And you're doing much the same sort of thing, but in this different challenge of prose rather than verse. Right. Uh, well, something I don't think I've ever told you about the short stories was I worked with you on the selected stories around 1990, and I read the four, four collections you'd done before then over a couple of weekends. Yes. And actually, I found it a profoundly upsetting experience. Oh, good. Um, so you, you made, you got that. <laughs> but, but, but what it was, was, was the intense focus on relationships, on mm. families, on uh, things, things in those stories seem quite trapped. If, uh, characters are trapped. Characters are trapped. <clears throat> um, their expectations are low. It's as if, well, I suppose God's gone out of the world and nothing yet has come back to replace it. Well, most of them, most of my short stories are set in New Zealand. (laughs) Um, And I I think that is an aspect of of our living here. And and we we, we see it all the time. And I don't think there's anything particularly negative about that. It's just that our... (laughs) Our lives often yeah. aren't exciting or we're constrained yeah. by various things. Yeah. It's the existentialist thing, isn't it? This is where you are. Make the most of it. Yeah. It's no good getting on with uh, having regrets. Yeah. As Mansfield said herself about her yeah. stories, there is only today. And that's what interests me in short stories, is that you look at a character at a moment or in an, ex- an intense experience, yeah. and the intensity itself becomes a spotlight that tells you about the character. Right. And yet, for me, the, the change in your writing that I'm thinking of at the moment is in those short stories, which you came back to the form later, 
and there's a collection, The Families, from a couple of years ago, which have similar sort of focus and in intense situations where people are mm. sort of bound together by life. And, and yet the temperature of the collection is very different, isn't it? There are many more moments of kindness or grace in those I'm stories. afraid that's one of the penalties of age. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is that you're going to be a lot more kind to characters or a yeah. lot less judgmental. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that is a weakness at times, I agree. <laughs> oh, I'm getting all of this wrong. Anyway, we'll, we'll go back now to that, that decade um, yeah. from sort of 78 to 88. And, and the other thing that you did then that was new um, was the work in theatre, and you threw yourself into those collaborative mm. art forms. What, what was the attraction there? Oh, well, the great attraction, I think, is anyone <clears throat> who goes from writing stories to uh, theatre is just the collaborative thing. You know, that's, it, 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 there's really a great <clears throat> charm and interest in working with other people when you're a writer. It's, for example, one of the things I always envy about <clears throat> painters <coughs> and so on is they have these marvellous spaces, all this lovely stuff around them, papers and colours and pots and, yeah. and so on, whereas a writer, you're just in a room with, you know, um, well, if, if in my case, more a quill than a, something more technical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and suddenly to move from that, to have to work with people, accommodate yourself, yeah. and so on. And I also sort of, the ob obvious thing to say, I love the theatricality of theatre people. You know, they're, it's somehow more interesting than real people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, and you spent most of that time in Australia on fellowships. I mean, what did those years in Australia give you? Oh, a great deal. Um, I was Some of those fellowships I was not teaching but associated with universities. And the thing that really struck me was Australian academics just seemed to me broader in their interests, less, I don't want to use the word precious, mm -hmm but perhaps less aware of themselves doing something special. Um, and it's one of the things that I admire about Australians. They don't feel, as we do, that they always have to prove themselves, that Australians know who they are, and I still think with us, at times, the mould hasn't quite settled. Mm -hmm. And that makes us a bit anxious, a bit uneasy, but also interesting in various ways. So you saw New Zealand and New Zealanders more clearly from having spent time with the Australians? Yes, it may not have been more clearly and it may have just been more limited yeah. and personal, yeah. but it was a very different. It just struck me as, you know, vast. Do, do you think there's such a thing as Australian literature? Or an, oh, absolutely. An, an, Austra an Australasian literature? Do you think the broader region exists? No, I don't think there's Australasian literature. Yeah. Um, I'd say that if an awfully close run was that Catherine Mansfield was nearly Australian mm -hmm. and that her father was born in the Goldfields, yeah. you know, her, her mother was born in a pub in George Street in Sydney. Um, and if she had been Australian, I'd believe in Australasian literature so we could somehow get in on the act. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but we don't need to do that, fortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
um, because it's often the, the, the great um, mirage for New Zealand writers. Yes. They can become Australasian and suddenly yeah. find a slightly bigger world. But yeah. that, that sort of... I, I don't think there is. That I yeah. don't think we're... For all we have in common, and thank goodness we have, there's that massive difference. As an Australian friend of mine rather unkindly said, the difference between us, he said... You can always tell a New Zealander because if you stand on their foot, they say sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, now you came, but you came yeah. back to New Zealand in 1988 mm. to a professorship at Victoria University, yeah. um, and again, there's another of those renewals, another change in mm. in your projects, and that's when you wrote those two novels, "Let the River Stand" and mm. "Believers to the Bright Coast." Um, and I actually think of those books as New Zealand's two finest Australian novels. And there's something about the, the saga of the family in the Waikato yeah. and Let the River Stand and the sort of the, the antic social scope of Believers to the Bright Coast that you seldom get in New Zealand novels. Yeah, that hasn't occurred to me. I wrote those after living in Australia and reading Australian stuff and so on for years. And so that's very likely be the case, but I'd, I'd still very much like to think they're New Zealand, primarily. Yeah. Well, entirely New yeah, Zealand yeah. In, their, mm. in their content and themes, but mm. there's something sort of yeah. broad mm. in their confidence, perhaps. I'm, you've stumped me here. Okay, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll move <laughs> right on. It's, it's, it's been, let me see, 18... It, it would have meant that I'd have, to, I'd have had to read those novels in quite a different way. Yeah than I would to think if this was so, yeah. you know. Um, but, so, but it's 18 years since you committed a novel. Yes, um, yeah. But, 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 but I know you're writing another one. Um, so are, are you one of those writers who's superstitious about talking about work in progress, or can you tell us about the new novel and why you've come back no, well, to I'm, long I'm, fiction? Uh, I'm interest, interested in, in the form, and I won't talk much about it because if it's never done, People will say, do you remember that time that bloke was talking about a novel and it, we never saw anything about it? You know, I think it's, it's bad luck to really... Okay, really, superstitious. It, it, it's, it's like saying, you know, you're going to marry someone before you've talked to them about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your other big project in those years at Victoria was um, the John Mulgan biography. Oh, yeah. what, what, what attracted you to Mulgan? Well, Mulgan strikes me as the most interesting New Zealand personality that I've, I've come across. I, f I find him an enormously admirable and challenging. Who was, I mean, you can't help but admire Mulgan, who was so good at so many things, but that's not the reason. Finally, it's the fact that, and also so New Zealand, mm -hmm. such a New Zealander, and yet so enigmatic. And I don't mean enigmatic in the sense that any suicide is enigmatic, but almost everything about Mulgan, you know, his charm, his literary style, anything, you get close to it and then you realise you can't get as close as you want to. And similarly with the mystery, and it is still a mystery. I mean, we've got the facts of his end and at least three or four reasons why he committed suicide and yet they still don't seem adequate. Mm. And it's the elusiveness of someone as fascinating as that, and yet someone whose background 
as an Aucklander whose interests and so on were very close to one's own and yet so distant too. It's this constant, I suppose, the, the, the fascination of the difficulty of trying to grasp Melton that draws me back to him. Yeah, um, because the biography is intimate and up close and mm. entirely convincing, and but you stop short of um, giving us a theory at the end. You, you give a lot of information, and there are several yeah. things that can be drawn. Do, several years later now, um, on reflection, do, do you have a personal theory that you're willing to... You know, I, <clears throat> I don't think... Um, Biographer's job is to theorize. Right. And I recently read a biography, for example, of Christina Rossetti, and it was based on the guesswork that there was some sort of incestuous event in, in the family, for which there's no evidence. And I don't really care what the biographer theorizes. You want to know, give us as much detail as you can of the available facts and let us put that together. Yeah. And so, no, I don't have a theory uh, about it. I mean, there was his depression, the war, the fact that the people he was fighting with a few months before were suddenly involved in a civil war. He was in love with someone in Greece, didn't want to come back. He was, these days, I, one thing I would guess is, or, or I think you can substantiate too, is we'd call him bipolar, but there, wasn't the word, there weren't the words mm. for it, so on. And the fact that he had malaria a few, short time before he committed suicide and the medication was a depressive. Right. So, I mean, all these things add up and they finally don't have to give us an explanation. It's enough to say these, are, we know, are real contributions to his death. Yeah. Okay. Moving on then, um, you've written another biography, um, which is as yet unpublished, um, of Ralph Hotter. You <laughs> talked before about the glory of a painter's life and the colours and the materials. Yeah. No, well, that will never be published because of um, it, it was. I was doing the Ralph Hotter biography because he invited me to, um, and it was prevented by. Uh, the behaviour of certain people on uh, the Hotry Trust and so on, who just finally made it impossible mm. to continue with it. In his last years, I was denied access to him and so on. So the whole thing became rather a bitter story. Oh. Um, <clears throat> so I'd, I'd written a good deal of it in draft and so on, yeah. but it had to be dropped because it, you get to the point with something, it's no good, you know, yeah. but, battering yourself against the wall is not going to give. And it had nothing to do with artistic reasons. It was directly against, against Ralph's own, uh, you know, wishes for, yeah. for it being written. Yeah. So I just put that one aside, unfortunately, because he's a very, I think, a great painter. And um, one day, in the material I've got, I've, I've put into a library and in 20 or so yeah. years when um, the, the malign forces are no longer with yeah. us, someone is absolutely welcome to use this material. Yeah. It does, <laughs> does seem a great shame to leave that absence in your, yes. your work. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. Mm. Um, and in recent years, you've shifted to the collaborations with Ross as a librettist. Um, 
And what is the particular attraction about that? Because some poets find writing for music um, particularly constraining. Well, it is constraining in the sense that writing words for a song or for a libret- uh, for an aria or something, it's not, people think, oh, there's a poem set to music. It's not so at all. It's very different. A poem is a completed thing. You might <coughs> say an artifact or something. Yeah. It's, it's separated from you. It's out there. <coughs> And it is then just the reader's business. But with a song or a libretto, you've really not created anything final. You've just given the framework for someone in another art form and with a higher and more expansive skill than your own to come and and take over. So in other words, a song is never completed until it's performed or until the music is there. And there's something refreshing about that. Partly, as I say to Ross, if we get a bad review for this, finally it's you. <laughs> you know, and so on. Yeah. But again, it's, 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 it's a, sort of rather a lovely collaborative yeah. experience because I admire his music, I like the man, yeah. and it's, it's almost a relaxing thing to do for a writer to be involved with something like that. A relaxing thing to do, and yet it's been the vehicle with which you've come closest to writing about the First World War, the centenary, and your Mm. sort of desire to sort of withdraw from the sort of majority commemoration and look at at the hardships. I suppose I was meaning the the process is the enjoyable thing, but... uh, Yes, it it was an opportunity, too, for both, because we, I suppose, politically think much the same, Mm. And it was a way of saying we had reservations about uh, some of the things that are said about the war, the way it's it's celebrated. To be quite frank about this, the thing I hope that Brass Poppies or whatever, the the next uh, piece we've done that was a commission for the the BBC Symphony that's, that's now finished, and but relating to the war, it's the absolute opposite attitude towards the war that you got, for example, at the official celebration last year. Celebration, see this dreadful word to use about, as if there's anything to celebrate about Gallipoli. Um, But if you were watching the the, uh, commemorative service on the day of the Hundred Years, you got Prime Ministers from Australia and New Zealand reading platitudes written by other people, no doubt. Mm. And then for all our rhetoric and all the way we like to say, you know, that ridiculous, it seems to me, theory that oh, somehow our identity was forged on the battlefields and so on, forged is right. And at the same time as they're doing this, what do they do to represent the independence of New Zealand and Australia they trot out British royalty to tell us over again what fine chaps we are in dying for the the cause. And no one really, historians simply don't accept that this is quite the story any longer. Right. So it was good to be able to, I suppose, wave a flag about that. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> We're almost out of time here, um, but could could you perhaps read a couple of poems to just round the session out? Well, perhaps just 
I've seen we were talking about that, the, uh, the war. I'll just finish with two poems, not songs, but poems that relate to the, the war and that express, uh, I suppose, some of my thinking about them. One of them is called Timetable 1917, which is actually drawn from the experience that someone told me once about a relative of theirs who was engaged three times to uh, young men, and none of them came back. And it's really just an imaginative move from there. <clears throat> the three men I kissed over three summers had it decided for them not to return. Is it any wonder I sit in the bay window and embroider half the age of my aunts who have only statistics to grieve each morning as the paper's wings unfold, shared numbers enough to keep both sides at it, arrays by piling more. Three men so different, I feel no shame now I think of them as one. God gets by with the same maneuver. Why deny it to man? I lay hanks of wool as I choose the truest colors for autumn, the favored season, have you noticed, for those who embroider. It will pass, as common a phrase as one hears. It makes way for the past that has still to arrive. And the last uh, one is also based on something I heard from an, an old dig when I was a young person about um, his own experience at the front of seeing an animal um, actually in no man's land, and it's called the hare, he said. You can't imagine what it was like to see a creature other than rats, to see he meant its living pertness, its ears alert and standing and the sun pink through them, a kind of warmth we'd as good as forgot, its bizarre insistent confidence its paws casual even between coiled, snagging wire as if mere brambles, not a dozen yards to the left, a corpse-infested ditch. He said, we watched him with childish wonder, as though an angel had landed at an atheist's picnic, a Methodist as he'd been then, wryly thinking back. And no one, none, the hare, the angel, the bleeding enemy, us, knowing who should disturb it first, who'd regret forever wrecking its undamaged world. Who did? He couldn't tell you. The one fine thing he said that was worth remembering, the hair. Thank you. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.